have the pleasure this morning of introducing Marie Wood. Some of you know Marie. You were here when she shared a word with us a few months ago. Um, we're continuing our series again on uh, living an authentic life. And uh, Marie and her family have been here at New Life for about 13 years. And what she would have you to know is that she's sharing from her journey as a mother of medically fragile children. Um, but what I would have you to know about her is that she is a person who loves the Lord very deeply. Um, she is a person who loves the word, who studies the word, and she is a gracious, gracious person with a depth of spirit that I'm sure that you're going to feel as you hear what she has to bring to us today. So please give her a hand, Marie Wood. Good morning, New Life. So as Jackie said, it's been uh, 13 years since David and I moved from Virginia to New York and joined New Life Fellowship. At that time, our eldest son, Lucian, was two, and Blaze was three months old. Since then, we've added three more little boys to our crew, Reed, Paley, and Kepler. And once again, we are relocating our family, but this time we're going from New York to Virginia. Yeah, it's bittersweet. <laughs> the people at New Life have been a source of life and encouragement to us for over a decade. Um, so we're really going to miss you guys. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I'm thankful that I can share the word with you again one more time. And I trust and pray that the Lord will bless us together. So the passage we'll be looking at today comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verse 34, which reads, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And let's go ahead and read it in its larger context. So beginning in Mark eight twenty-seven, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your eyes on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the people here, Lord. Thank you for this time together. 
I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us into an authentic life as we learn about what it means to deny ourselves, to take up our crosses, and to follow after you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I mentioned, our family is moving and transitioning to another state right now. And when I was examining our new home, I couldn't help but notice that our next-door neighbors had just built a new swimming pool. So uh, it's still in the 90s in Southern Virginia, so we will be befriending those people as soon as possible (laughs) to be neighborly. So as excited as I am about our new neighbors and their pool, I also thought to myself about how I'll have to get our youngest son, Kepler, into swimming lessons soon. I mean, he's only three months, so we still have time. I just like to plan ahead. But for safety reasons, one of the first things that you teach small children in a swimming class is how to float, because it can be key to saving themselves should they accidentally fall into the water. And floating is an interesting skill, because it really isn't that difficult, yet it comes to some easier than others. You see, the ability to float isn't so much about mastering a technique, but rather a way of being. If you're afraid and you panic, then you won't make it. You'll keep sinking. But if you're calm as you plunge into the water, then you will rise. You don't have to do anything except trust in your innate ability to float, and you'll live. So this kind of surrender and trust is similar to the way that all of us are called to die, to face death. Yes, the Christian life calls for death. I wanted to start off on a positive note. So the Christian life calls for death, primarily death to the self. However, there is a way to die that brings life. As followers of Jesus, and this is what I hope you take away today, we should die to ourselves so that something great can live. If we die in the wrong way, the right things cannot live in us. Or in other words, if you're dying to live, then you aren't dying to live. If you're dying to live, then you aren't dying to live. It's the emphasis that makes all the difference. And this concept of dying the right way, dying in the way that brings life, is what is at the heart of Jesus' teaching about discipleship in Mark 8.34. So let's think about the background here. First, keep in mind that this is Jesus' first major prediction of his death. In the Gospel of Mark, he actually hints at his death several times, but there are three major predictions of his death, and this is the first one. The story is also included in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, so we know that there's something foundational here about discipleship. And notice the pattern. So Jesus predicts his suffering and death, The disciples, Peter mainly, express confusion, and then Jesus teaches about discipleship. And then we see the same pattern with the other stories in Mark 9 and Mark 10. Now you might be wondering, well, why is it that the disciples are so confused? Why don't they get it? 
didn't they know Jesus? Well, do you remember the Karate Kid? (laughs) Danny LaRusso knew that Mr. Miyagi was good at karate, but he thought that he was going to teach him the way the Cobra Kai dojo taught their students. So when Mr. Miyagi made him sand the deck and paint the fence and wax on and wax off on all those cars, he thought he was just getting scammed into doing a lot of free work. But then it turned out that he really was learning karate. (laughs) So you see, sometimes we misunderstand other people because of our own expectations. And in fact, Mark's portrayal of Jesus addresses the misunderstanding the Jews had by revealing Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, as one who has come to suffer and die and to offer his life as a ransom for many. Mark had to drive the point home of this servant Messiah because this idea was vastly different from what the Jews were expecting at that time. You see, Jerusalem had been conquered by the Romans, several decades before Jesus was born. So in the first century, Israel was occupied by the Roman Empire. Therefore, many of the Jews expected that the promised Messiah of the Old Testament would liberate them through a violent military rebellion against the Romans. That's why in Mark 8.29, even though Peter correctly identifies Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah... Jesus knows that the disciples have their own expectations about what the Messiah will do. And Jesus isn't about that. And because Jesus never lies, and he doesn't even mislead, he tells them in plain words that the Messiah will suffer and die. And then Peter, Peter, poor, well-intentioned Peter, He pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. Now, we aren't told what he said exactly. Um, Maybe it was something like, Lord, listen to me. Listen to me. I I know you're the son of the living God and uh, capable of miraculous feats and everything, but you really need to work on your recruitment strategy. Jesus responds by calling Peter Satan, because he is not focused on the things of God, but on the things of man. And that right there is the key to what Jesus means, not just for Peter, but for us. Denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Jesus means dying to sin and dying to all the false expectations we have about ourselves, about who God is, and about what he's doing in our lives. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously wrote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And that death is the self-denial in Mark 8.34. Now, sometimes people think that denying yourself is like depriving yourself. You know, as if God is some personal trainer holding out a bowl of ice cream or you're running on the treadmill and he's saying, you can't have this. But that's not what denying yourself means. Denying yourself is not depriving yourself. Denying yourself doesn't mean that you should never be happy or that you can't do anything pleasant or enjoyable. 
If you think that's what Christianity is all about, then, then you are missing the boat. Denying yourself does mean to stop diluting yourself. It does mean letting con- con- it does mean letting go of your desire to control God, the God of your own making, the God who does whatever you want him to do. Now, for me, the most vivid experience of dying to control and unfulfilled expectations relates to my experience as a mother of two boys with a rare disease. Our sons, Reed and Paley, they have a severe life-threatening muscle disease called myotubular myopathy. It makes them dependent on machines to eat, to breathe, to communicate, and to simply get around. Now, as long as I can remember, I've always wanted to be a mother. And I've always been healthy. So I always assumed that all of my children would be just as strong and healthy as the people in my family and David's family are. So ever since Reed and Paley came into our lives, I've had to die to the assumption of health. I've had to die to the assumption that most parents make that your children will outlive you. I've had to die to so many assumptions that I've lost count because they've just been blasted away by the force of reality. And I've had to grieve for those unmet expectations. And like the falling tears that are eventually wiped dry, I've had to let those expectations die. And your life may be very different from mine, but we all have expectations. We all make assumptions about the future. And at some point or another, you have been disappointed by them. Maybe you don't have the health status you want. Maybe you don't have the job you always aspired to. Maybe you don't have the scores or grades that you thought you earned. Maybe you don't have the significant other that you've always desired. Maybe you don't live in the house that you expected to own. Maybe people don't accept you or respect you the way that you thought they would. Maybe you don't have the number in your bank account that makes you feel secure or the explanations that make sense of your circumstances. And Jesus is calling you to die to your disappointment about those things. He's calling you to die to your disappointment so that you can embrace the present reality of his grace. Because in order to answer the call of Jesus, we have to die to everything that isn't true. The disciples had to die to their preconceived notion of a Messiah who would lead them in a glorious battle and victory against the Roman Empire. In fact, Jesus called almost all of his disciples to follow him all the way to martyrdom. And the word martyr comes from the Greek word that means witness. The disciples went to their deaths proclaiming that they witnessed the risen Jesus after he was crucified. And their witness was signed and sealed in their very blood. And just as Jesus says in Mark 8.35, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it, 
So it was the disciples' testimony, their witness, their martyrdom for Jesus and the gospel that established the early church nearly 2,000 years ago. And though the enemy has tried and continues to try up until this day to come against it, yet the gates of hell have never prevailed against it. Because they died. Because they died, the church lives. And they are alive with Christ in heaven, just as their legacy is alive with us right here. And we too are called to die unto life. Maybe not true martyrdom, but we are all called to die to something so that something even greater can live. Now, how do we die? Or how do we know what needs to die? Well, at New Life Fellowship, we have something that we talk about called the rule of life. Your rule of life is like a trellis that guides your growth and allows you to bear rich spiritual fruit. And so rule of life is a way of grounding your spiritual life through spiritual disciplines. The self-denial and cross-taking that Jesus is talking about in Mark 8.34 is accomplished through discipline. Now the word discipline comes from the Latin word disciplina, which means teaching, and discipulus, which means student. So discipline is a fine, good word. But sadly, it's been tainted by a lot of bad associations. Primarily, when we think about discipline, we think about punishment. Yet in its deepest sense, spiritual discipline is not punishment. In fact, spiritual disciplines should be an occasion of joy and of living as a resurrection people. And spiritual discipline is also not a substitute for grace. Engaging in the spiritual disciplines does not win us points with God. Spiritual discipline is simply a way of retraining our habits to focus on Christ and dwell in his presence so that we can be more receptive to the grace that God is always extending to us through his spirit. And so what are these spiritual disciplines? Well, I'm sure you know some of them, such as praying and fasting and studying the word, uh, worshiping. There are actually a lot of uh, interesting spiritual disciplines that we don't talk about as much, like solitude and silence and secrecy. I love the spiritual disciplines. I love discipline. Does that sound weird? I could talk about them all day, but I won't do that. I'm just gonna. I just want to share two examples of my experiences with the spiritual disciplines. Um, the first is studying and meditating on the Word. And so by this, I mean not just studying its historical and linguistic context, but actually meditating on the meaning of the word with the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And there's a caveat. So if you're like me and you're drawn to learning and knowledge and wisdom and insight, you have to be careful that you're not studying and contemplating simply to appear more intelligent or spiritually superior to anyone. You're contemplating the word so that you can receive it into your being as a love letter from your creator. You're contemplating the word so that the Holy Spirit can plant a new thing in you. 
You're contemplating the word so that you learn to recognize and know the voice of the Lord. And there have been many times when the voice of the Lord has spoken to me in those dark places, at the sickbed, and during those long nights at the hospital. And recognizing and knowing the voice of the Lord through scripture is connected to the next discipline, which is prayer. Because the ability to hear God in his word trains us to hear God through prayer. So let's talk about a, l- a little bit about prayer. Prayer is a discipline that tends to combine well with all the other disciplines. And it makes sense because prayer is primarily about communicating and communing with God. So the problem with prayer is that we get the communicating part, but we think that it's all about us talking to God or asking for things. And we forget about communing with God. And our desires and things that we want are so loud in our own minds that we can't even hear God when he is speaking to us. But sometimes my most powerful prayers have been silent, wordless times of dwelling in God's presence, listening to him speak to me, renewing my spirit and renewing my mind. And when the weather permits, I like to go on what I call prayer walks. And this is when I just mostly enjoy the solitude and silence of walking around and listening to the Lord. There are times when I can die to the desire to be distracted or entertained and to really focus and center myself on Christ so that I become deeply conscious of his loving presence in my life. I once described an afternoon like this as absent-minded smiles, conversations like kisses, my secrets with God. And in those secret times, God has asked me to die. But it is always a death that leads to life. I don't want to drink the bitter cup, but I trust that the one who offers it to me knows better than I do, and he intends to work all things for my good. And so in allowing my own expectations to die, I've discovered that instead of the safe, comfortable life I expected, God has invited me, along with my family, to embrace the unknown and to trust him to be with us on this surprising and wonderful, challenging adventure. In allowing my need for consistency and predictability to die, I found a faith that can't be faked or forced. And from the ground of this faith, I've discovered an immense joy. My children, each and every one of them, disability or not, is a blessing that's too great for me. And sometimes I just have to look at one of them and I marvel. I'm intrigued by the lines of their jaws, by the looks in their eyes, by the lengths of their eyelashes, by the quirks of the corners of their smiles. If I could, I would count the hairs on their heads. 
And then sometimes I cry because I'm so full of joy and because the love between us is so beautiful. It's so much like the infinity of heaven trying to break out on the earth that I almost can't contain it in my merely human body. And it's in those moments that I begin to catch a glimpse of the necessity of death. We must die in order to live. Death is the drum roll that anticipates new life. And Christ is also asking you to trust himself enough to die. And so I ask you, my friends, how do you die? How do you die? When you hear the call of Christ, is your heart full of bitterness, resentment, stubbornness, or fear? You know, sometimes I think that we're afraid of not being afraid because it's all we know. It's like gripping onto the edge of a cliff, not wanting to stay there, but not wanting to move because we're more comfortable with the pain we know than the pain that we don't know. But Jesus says that whoever tries to save his life will lose it. And the reality is, you've already fallen over the ledge. You've already plunged into the waters. You can't control it. So how will you respond? Are you dying to live like a drowning man, flailing in panic, gasping for air, grasping for the surface of the water? Or are you dying to live, accepting the plunge of your soul into the dark waters and finding in that quiet, contemplative place where all illusions die, that the Lord of life lives in you. And he calls you to trust in the natural buoyancy of a believer to raise you up from the depths. If you have received the crucified and risen Christ, then when facing death with trust, you too will rise. You have been appointed to die, but you have been anointed to live. Because following Jesus to the cross is the prelude to following Jesus to the resurrection. And so my dear friends, please remember this as you go about your days and your weeks and your years. Following Jesus to the cross is the prelude to following Jesus to the resurrection. So do not be afraid. Follow Jesus. Build a rule of life so that you can spend time with him. Illusions cannot bear to live in the presence of the one who grounds all reality. Spend time with Jesus. Spend time with him in prayer. Spend time with him in the word. Keep the Sabbath holy by resting from your cares and your troubles and your worries, believing that God has you. God has you in his grip of mercy and grace. You will die and you will live. Let us pray.
Oh Lord, each one of us has expectations about our lives, about how we think we're going to live or how things will be. We have our wants and our desires. We focus on the things of man, Lord, but I know that you're calling us to focus on you, to focus on the things of God. But it's difficult. It's hard for us, Lord. And yet you yourself, Jesus, you know that it is a bitter thing to die. And you feel this with us. And you empower us with your Holy Spirit to go to the cross and then to follow you to the resurrection as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Yes, give her a hand. So I'm going to ask you to extend your hand um, out to Marie. We're going to pray for her and her family as they prepare to leave New York. So Father, I just thank you for Marie. I thank you for her heart. I thank you for her love for you and for her devotion to being um, one who would bring forth the truth that would serve us all. And Father, I pray for her family as they travel. I pray that you grant her traveling mercies. I pray that this new home, actually going back home, would be a new just a new awareness of your love for them, just a new time of birthing, new wonders, new experiences. Bind them together, Lord, and just bless their new home and bless their future there. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I'm going to ask those that are preparing the communion to come forward. Um, And you know, this is a word for all of us. Right, so maybe again, maybe this is you, you're saying to yourself, "Hey, I'm not, I'm not this uh, parent of uh, medically fragile children." But the reality is that we may not be the parents, but we are definitely the challenged and fragile children of God. Um, I know this for myself. I know that if I don't find ways to open my life to silence and solitude, where I can allow God to speak to me. And where I stop speaking, I am lost. I am lost. And I'm lost. I'm the person that's going over that cliff. So this is a word for each and every one of us. Um, and as we share this prayer of confession, I just want you to listen to the words. As you, Even as you speak the words, listen to the words. Let them come into your heart and ask God, how is he coming to you through this confession? And what is it that he wants you to pay attention to? Okay. together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you through our own faults in thought, word, deed, in what we have done, in what we have left undone. For the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, forgive us all our offenses and grant that we may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your name. Amen. So the ushers are going to guide you. Please take the elements and then go back to your seat and we'll take together. I have a maker. He formed my heart. Be 
corporate communion is that it is corporate. We get to share together. We get to be here together, experience this together. And it's also very personal because during this time, God is speaking to each of us individually. This is our time to be at the Passover table with him. This is our time to hear his voice speak to our heart individually. And so on the night that he was betrayed, 
Jesus took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he said to his disciples, take and eat. And likewise with the cup, he raised it up, he blessed it, and he said, this is my blood, the covenant, the new covenant with you. And I pour my blood out for you. So take and eat. to ask the prayer teams to come over to my left. And so look, you know, it's a temptation when you hear these kinds of words. It's a deep word. It is a word that maybe we want to escape. But the reality is what Marie said to us is something we want to remember that yes, he's calling us to die. And in our human experience, thinking about death is not a positive thing, right? It doesn't feel good to have someone talk about death. But don't forget the context that she gave it to us in. We do need to die. We need to die to the things that we think and believe are true about our God, the things that we think and believe are true about ourselves. And we need to live and be rebirthed into his kingdom mentality. Each and every one of us have this struggle every day. Again, that's why we're here at communion. There is not one of us that is exempt from having a mind that will turn towards the things of the the world and not focus on the things of God. We have that in common. We're fragile. We're weak. We're sheep. And we need to be reminded every single day that there is a greater life that he's calling us to. And everything in this life that we have It will pass away. It will be gone. But what he puts in us, what he deposits, will live forever. So extend your hands for a blessing. Just hold them out. Brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the living God, may God bless you and may he keep you. May he turn his face toward you. And as you think about this death and as fear tries to creep up and grip you, let his love wash over you, reminding you that yes, you will die, but you will die to live. Live the resurrected true life, an authentic life, that the Lord Jesus Christ died to secure for each and every one of you. So may God bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you all.